Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Two weeks ago, we talked to Tom Burgess about his book Kleptopia and the London Laundromat and how he had been a victim of what's called lawfare. That's where wealthy and powerful people, oligarchs, use intimidating legal tactics to airbrush things from their past they don't want repeated. Tom won his case, which was great, but even in victory the costs can be astronomic. HarperCollins won cases against Russian oligarchs over Catherine Belton's book Putin's People, but they were still left with a £1.5 million bill. This week we've decided to do the first part of a two-part episode talking about oligarchs and the law. And we're joined by two lawyers with a wealth of knowledge about media law and reputation and all that. Mark Stevens has acted for clients as diverse as Arthur Scargill and Julian Assange. He practised law in Moscow in the 1990s and had a contract taken out on his life. He's well known for human rights work, especially in the Commonwealth, and is presently acting in the Yorkshire Cricket Club case. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, nice, nice to be to here. You. Nice to have you, Mark. <laughs> and I'm, as you see, the contract was not successful. <laughs> <laughs> and our other guest is David Hooper, a vastly experienced media solicitor, a former partner of Carter Ruck. I'm sure he'd like me to know. He acted in cases like Spycatcher in the 1980s, and he too has experience of Russia. Acting in a libel case, he was advised to hire a bodyguard with a beret and dark glasses. It must have worked because he fared better than the principals. The plaintiffs were strangled and the defendant shot. David, nice to see you. Yes, I, I was about the only one apart from the Forbes company, which couldn't be murdered, that survived that litigation. <laughs> Nobody wanted to be your trainee on that yes. case. <laughs> OK, I'd like to start with you, David. You're working on a book about lawfare. Would you care to tell us a little bit about its history? Where does it come from? Well, I think the problem is that we've got at the moment is that normally when people bring libel actions, they bring it to win and to vindicate their reputation. What you've got here is people trying to deter things from being written, to stop the book being published, stop the article coming out. And the thing is just a pure laundering exercise. It's to silence your critic because these guys have access to enormous amount of money. Many of them have stolen their money and they don't pay taxes and they hide it offshore. So you've got them on one side getting richer and richer and on the other side you get the traditional media really getting poorer and poorer because all the advertising's gone onto the internet. People read less newspapers and buy less books. These are the so-called slaps that you're talking about. Americans are very fond of acronyms. It's something called strategic lawsuits against public participation. And it's basically brought against individuals or NGOs when they're dealing with matters of public interest and they're raising public issues. It started off with environmental groups, so that if you were protesting against planning permission or some proposed development, they would bring an action to stop you doing it, and that has then morphed into freedom of speech. And we have a real problem with freedom of speech now. These are private lawsuits. These were in the States, I think, 
about 25 years ago they started? It was really devised by a couple of professors in America in the early 1990s. Bit by bit, various states in America have introduced these laws. And the great thing about these laws, which is really what the benefit would be in this country, is that they can stop these actions in their track. Because one of the things about the HarperCollins cases is that they run and run. And even if you have a public interest defence, you've spent one and a half million, two million by the time you've got there. Most people's pockets aren't that deep, apart, of course, from the oligarchs. So that's the deterrent effect. Yeah, and that assumes, really. of course, that you're going to win in the end. Because if you lose in the end, you're talking about much bigger sums than that. Yes, and, and people have got really quite good at it. I mean, a book like Catherine Bell clearly was not libelous, but they put about 10 meanings on the basis that a sympathetic judge might say, well, perhaps that should go for trial. But of course, by saying that should go for trial, they're condemning them to a two million bill and five million if they lose. Just for the benefit of the listeners, when you talk about meanings here, you're referring to, in a libel case, the plaintiff saying, you said this about me, and I think that is actually a way of insulting me. You, any reasonable person would read it in a way People that, would read it. Yeah. I mean, in the Burgess case, they were saying people would read it to suggest that because these people met an untimely end, that meant that the company had ordered their murder. And then the judge say, says, it doesn't mean that, or it does mean that. In that yeah. case, in that That's case, a Tom Burgess book, yep. Leptopia. Yeah. Yep. Mark, what about you? Have, have you ever been slapped yourself or have uh, represented a slapped client or done a slap? Well, the first one, I think, is actually the McDonald's case when McDonald's sued two anarchists, uh, Helen Steele and uh, David Morris. And I think that was about trying to censor them from saying that things in McDonald's weren't absolutely wonderful and healthy. You know, they handed out like 50 versions of this leaflet outside a... McDonald's head office in North London. Uh, they I didn't doubt go anyone to... there eats McDonald's <laughs> anyway. <laughs> they, were... <laughs> they know better. <laughs> yeah, they were quite. And they, they they sued, and I think somewhat foolhardy. And uh, Steele and Morris were indigent. They didn't have any money, and they didn't have any assets, which was kind of their strength. And they went to see Keir Starmer as a young, fresh-faced barrister. And he said, oh, we've got to bring Mark into this as well. We represented them pro bono for 11 years, the longest libel case in history. But the whole thing was about creating the worst environment for an individual. And of course, what it did, it had the Streisand effect. It amplified the message. Essentially, what that demonstrated was large corporates using their economic power to squash dissent and criticism. And so this is the technique which has been used in lawfare in the modern era. Obviously, it's been refined over time, but you have a huge inequality of power between immensely wealthy multi-billionaire oligarchs, whether they're Arabs, arms dealers, or people from the former Soviet bloc, their purpose isn't necessarily to win. Their purpose is to make it so expensive that you want it to stop. So I was the chair of a, an NGO called Global Witness, and we were sued by a couple of oligarchs, actually. They wanted to have our internal resources displaced 
They wanted to put us into economic distress. Many of them wrote to our trustees and funders, asked them to not give us any money because we were using it to libel them and things of that nature. They were trying to destroy the organisation. And so it is with these massive claims that you see that David was talking about against newspapers and the media more generally, because the media don't have the same economic resources and they certainly can't afford to take on an oligarch who has limitless money. Yeah, sure. You talked a bit about the background to slaps and the fact that they came from the United States and you're talking about the kind of practices we've seen more recently. I suppose one thing which interests me always about this is why London in particular has become such a venue for all of this. And basically... Is it just because our libel laws are encouraging to claimants? Yeah, I mean, you have to be a moron. Are we pitching for the You have to be a moron in a hurry in London in order to lose a libel case. The last bit of research that was done by (laughs) Professor Eric Berendt at University College, a little old now, but 95% of cases in this country, in the UK, are won by claimants, either by getting an apology. Libel uh, cases. Yeah, libel cases. It's very difficult for a plaintiff to lose a libel case in this country. And that's why crooks and brigands from all over the world jet into this country on their private planes and try to launder their reputations in Court 13, our libel court. This has been an abuse which has been going on for very many years. And it's also very difficult to stop a case once it's started. Because in America, they can cut them short. They have summary motions where they can cut short cases. Whereas in this country, the judges nearly always see them through to trial and say, well, the person will be condemned at the end if they've brought a baseless action. But of course, the newspaper or the NGO or whoever the individual is that's on the wrong end of the suit has got to go through purgatory and economic pain to get to that point. Does the judge in this country not have the right to throw it out at an early stage? They do, but it's so limited, it's almost useless. The judges always say, we want to hear what the evidence is, we want to see how this case goes. Whereas in America, because they've got the... First Amendment to the Bill of Rights and they've got the guarantees of free speech, there's a more even playing field. And as a consequence, many of their cases get stopped early. And of course, in this country, legal costs are not small. A decent action is going to cost you somewhere between one and two million. An exotic action, uh, an expensive one like Johnny Depp's libel case recently against Amber Heard, that's probably five million. In many ways, the vindication isn't really what's at stake here. It's the legal cost. Can you afford the serried ranks of lawyers? It's really far too easy for these oligarchs to bring actions. If you heard the names of the five people who had sued Catherine Belton's book, I mean, nobody had heard of these people. Uh, They'd heard of Roman Abramovich. They'd heard of Abramovich, but the other ones, Aven and I can't remember what the others were called. but Friedman. uh, Friedman. I mean, they they really had very little reputation. But, of course, they all say say that they've got houses and so forth here. But, of course, when it actually comes to looking at the houses, you find that there's some obscure Lichtenstein Trust or BVI company, offshore company, that, that owns it. When libel tourism was looked at and the law was changed in 2013, that was really only from the point of view of making it more difficult to sue foreign defendants. I think they need to make it much more rigorous 
before these people can bring actions in this country. Well, we'll, we'll come a little bit later to the whole question of uh, remedies. But one thing we haven't really talked about yet is what I call the wider aspects of lawfare, which is where it goes beyond a solicitor's chambers and turns into private eyes, investigations, very aggressive tactics, use of things like whatever it is, the data protection legislation to simply bomb people with absolutely unnecessary demands for information, or suing in multiple jurisdictions just for the purpose of running up costs. A, are these practices very widespread? How can lawyers really look to their own consciences and think these are justifiable ways to behave? Well, because you want the oligarch extension on your home or you want the <laughs> oligarch-sponsored okay, school yeah, yeah, fees. Right. At, Dumb uh, question. Dumb yeah, question. I mean, you know, <laughs> lawyers will do most things for money. And I think it's only 99% of lawyers that give the rest a bad name. I think that's probably fair. Lawyers this is, are... We're literally talking to the 1% here. <laughs> In well, a good way. I've had my fair share of oligarchs. So I'm going to put my hands up now. Um, The point about it is that they're paid to do a job. It's a lawful job that they do. But what they do is that because there's no cost restriction, there's no budget on these cases, they can do exactly what Jonathan said. They can employ private detectives. They usually employ two or three private detective companies to see what each one of them will pull up and also what they're doing with each other. And the oligarchs amongst themselves, particularly the Russians, all know each other socially. They all live around Eaton Square and visit each other's homes. And they do coordinate their actions. And you saw that, I think, in the the Harper Collins case. Yeah. And this is not unusual. And sometimes they'll divide it up and say, well, we want to go against this individual and you go against that one. Libel is intended to be about a blot on the family escutcheon. It's meant to be about a stain on your name. And it's about vindicating that and saying it's wrong. But of course, that's not what they're doing here. Because if you're an oligarch in Russia, you could perfectly well go to court in Russia. They have a perfectly good legal system. But of course, everybody knows that it's largely corrupt, certainly up to the Supreme Court. As a consequence, they don't regard a vindication in Russia as having the same value as the Queen's Court, as they put it. And so what they're doing is that they're washing their reputations, which they could never launder because they're so solid in their home countries, in our country, and abusing our court system in the process. I'm puzzled, really, as to how they can get away with it. I mean, one small example, you mentioned that in one recent action, they all said they were acting individually, and they all, more or less simultaneously, put in their complaint a day before it would have been barred by time. And surely, I mean, that is what I would call a lie. And I don't really understand why the courts can't take that sort of thing into account in deciding how to deal with these extremely complex and very long-running and expensive cases. Well, one of the problems with lawyers is that they're nothing if not pedestrian in terms of their views of the law. They look at the rules and they tell you what the rules say. What they don't do, except for the small minority, is develop the law so that justice is done, certainly at the uh, lower levels. And so very often you see these abuses coming through. So we've seen waves of people from the Middle East who were 
associated with al-Qaeda and the Taliban and stuff, and they they sued for libel. And then then you got the sort of Balkan and uh, Russians coming in and, and suing for libel. Because actually, if you try to gather evidence against one of these people, it's very, very difficult. You jested in the introduction, Jonathan, about me having a contract taken out of me. But that was because I got the evidence against the oligarch. The way I did it, so when I was working in Moscow, we all had our KGB shadow. And my KGB shadow introduced me to his mate at the Lubyanka. And one of the first uh, Western people to not only enter the Lubyanka, but also to leave. On the same day. On the same day. (laughs) In one piece. Yes. And what he had was... They'd been investigating this particular oligarch for corruption. They had every document. They had transactions. They had a complete compromise. But <laughs> the oligarch had bribed this guy's colonel, the boss. And so they couldn't bring forward the case. So I said, well, can I have it then? And he said, yes, but I'm going to need a subpoena from you or some document ordering me to give it over. I said, well, that's not going to be worth anything here. An English subpoena doesn't work here. He said, yes, but I don't know that. And my boss doesn't know that. So I came and got a a subpoena in London, which said in a big rubber stamp on it in red, not for service outside the jurisdiction, handed this over to him at the Libyanka and he gave me all these files. At which point the thing then tipped into a very nasty situation where there was physical intimidation and threats which were taken very, very seriously by the security services here. Serious stuff. I always thought in my naive way that the solicitors and lawyers did have some sort of higher duty to make sure that justice was done. Am I completely wrong in this? You're looking absolutely mystified, <laughs> yeah. as if I'm talking and suddenly started talking in Martian or something. This is Just, a mistake that you make, having yeah, spent a career in journalism. Yeah, yeah okay. But <laughs> but there was quite a lot of there were quite a lot of squawks from the legal profession when that MP Bob Seeley started naming Geraldine Proudler, Nigel Tate, and others in Parliament. I suppose two questions. One is, do you think this isn't fair? It's basically these people shouldn't be criticised for just doing a perfectly normal job. Do you think they are open to criticism? And do you think there is any difference between a barrister who in theory has to operate on the cab rank principle and just take what he's given or a solicitor who basically makes this into their practice? Well, I think the solicitors are looking for the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Certainly with Mishcons, uh, they have made a model of going after such cases, and uh, they make an extremely good living out of it, or they certainly did till re- recent developments. And what Tragic developments. <laughs> and what, we, what we've also noticed, too, is there were various firms. I mean, well, Geraldine Parado, who you mentioned, was, was one of them. I mean, she worked for The Guardian, was a trustee. Was on the Scott Trust. Uh, she has moved over to the claimant side, and Niri Shan of Taylor Wessing, he was very much a defence lawyer uh, and doing only defence work. Right. But the lure of money has, um, is too much for, for those firms, and they now increasingly do just claimant work. I mean, I think one of the things here is the lure of lucre. Well, and I, I think what they're doing is perfectly lawful. What you might criticise them for is representing reprehensible individuals or something of that kind. Or engaging in the whole practice of a slap, it seems to me, to to use a sort of muzzling effect of 
bombarding people with irrelevant litigation just well, seems to me to be kind of well i think it is morally oofish. reprehensible and you know it's it, it, it's it's effectively a hired gun for censorship yeah. i mean that's what it is let's call yeah. it and yeah. the key i, I think to now. this is i think having ways of dealing with that one of the challenges is that as long as it's lawful to represent somebody whether their money is stained with blood or not, then lawyers somewhere will do it. And the question, I think, is a more fundamental one. Yes, you could morally turn these people away. And it's interesting that the big city firms are now turning out the oligarchs and their businesses, even the ones that haven't been sanctioned. And they're now going to the mid-tier firms who are rubbing their hands with glee. If you want a share tip, take shares in the mid-sized legal firms in London because they're all about to inherit the oligarchs. Investments can go up and down, readers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, capital at risk. Yes. <laughs> but the, the, the point about it is that when we come to represent somebody as a lawyer who's got blood on their hands or they've got money which has been dishonestly and criminally acquired, we as lawyers in this country are required to report that to law enforcement. So we have to tell the National Crime Agency. As a consequence of that, we get permission from the National Crime Agency to represent these people because they've made a valuation that following the money... So if the lawyers think the money's dirty, it's probably a good hint that it is, and they then follow the money and they can see where the money flows and plot the interactions. As a consequence of that, the lawyers are given permission, vouchsafed by the government to act for people who are crooks. And that's actively encouraged. This is extraordinary because if you, the lawyer who knows quite a lot about what's gone on, think that there's a nasty smell from it, and you go along to the agency and they say, it's all fine, here's your rubber stamp to continue, then you are off the hook. But what have they been doing? I mean, they are actually advocating ludicrous legal claims on the basis that they can afford to pay them with tainted money. That's surely what's going on. Yeah, I mean, How so, the so if I make a, live with itself. Yeah, if I make a report to the National Crime Agency, they have the ability to undertake an investigation. And if you ever ask a lawyer in London how many times they've reported, they might tell you, you know, 50, 100, 1,000. And then the question you ask of the National Crime Agency is, how many times have you stopped a lawyer? And the answer is, oh, we don't keep records of that. Well, the reason they don't keep records is because they all know it's zero. Never have they ever stopped it. And what they do is they give you a little chit, which is called a defence against money laundering, a damble, as it's known in a the dabble. trade. A damble, a D-A-M-L. <laughs> Not a damble. Uh, and, and, and that gives you a literal get-out-of-jail-free card to act with dirty money. So that's when we can go and buy the oligarchs' houses in Eaton but, Square and all the rest of it. But why does the agency not just say no we don't like this either we're not going to give you your get out of jail card well i think they've had a morality bypass or they have made an assessment of the intelligence that they're getting that it's more valuable to plot the money flows than it is to stop the transactions and of course you know the money's flowing through london there's a sort of invisibles and economic crime and you know you sort of think you know if you think about the underworld economy you know, organised crime is currently 15% roughly of the world's GDP. 
So there's an enormous, there's a shadow <laughs> economy going on here on a global basis. And we are a global city and we want global transactions. And this is where the money is filtered through. We are the London laundrette. Great. Well, we'll be back next Friday for the second part of this conversation, looking at what actionable progress can be made. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. Join us again next week.